Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're continuing our Easter series, He Chose the Nails, and I've entitled our message, The Jesus Question and Answer. Near the end of Jesus' ministry, he asked a very significant question. He directed it to his disciples primarily, but I'm sure it was being asked and answered much more broadly. And this was his question to the 12. Who do people say that I am? Again, he said it in a closed context with his disciples. He wasn't simply doing a survey for marketing purpose. He asked because so much of the future hinged on the answer to that question, who do people say that I am? Now we know as Christ followers that the answer to that question is the foundation of forgiveness of sins, atonement. We know the answer to that question is the foundation for eternal life and heaven. We know that the answer to that question is the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. It's our source of faith. Because we know that salvation, if you believe the New Testament at all, is through faith in Jesus Christ, and faith in Jesus Christ must reside in his identity, who he declared himself to be. A renowned atheist offers some good theology. I've shared this before. You might be familiar with it. I love an honest atheist. During a recent trip to Portland, Oregon, noted atheist Christopher Hitchens laid down some seriously good theology. Most people recognize Hitchens as the author of the best-selling book, God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. Since the book's publication in 2007, he has toured the country debating a series of religious leaders, including some well-known evangelical thinkers. In Portland, he was interviewed by a Unitarian minister named Marilyn Sewell, The entire transcript of the interview was posted online. This is an exchange that took place near the start of the interview. Sewell, the minister. The religion you cite in your book on atheism is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. She says, I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for instance. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith, which would be our faith, by the way, and liberal religion? Here's what the atheist said. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. He said that to a minister. I love it. Sewell wanted no part of that discussion, so her next words were, let me go someplace else. And I think she might have meant physically, let me go someplace else. No. This little snippet demonstrates an important point about religious God talk. You can call yourself anything you like, but if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the dead, you are not, as the atheist says, in any meaningful sense, a Christian. 
Talk about nailing it. And one of the delicious ironies of our time, an outspoken atheist grasps the central tenet of Christianity better than many Christians do. What you believe about Jesus Christ really does make a difference. The atheist gets it. The pastor doesn't. Here's an interesting twist on this. There are about 15 million Jews in the world. I think it's a little higher than that now. Um, I am 132nd Jewish. If there were some international benefit to being Jewish, I would claim I was Jewish, but I got 132nd, that's it. There are about 2 million out of 15 million Jews who are Orthodox. Now, I remember that would mean they would be conservative. Now, I remember when I was uh, quite a bit younger, and we had a rabbi come to our evangelical pastors fellowship, and I was a part of this group that was a group of ministers in Minnesota that would get together about once a month, and we would share some ideas and do some training together, just try to make sure that as pastors in the same community that we remain friends, and so we worked on that together. And we had a Jewish rabbi come and speak to that group, and I remember as he was there, I asked him this question. I said, how many people are there in the world who are Jewish, who still have a perspective on the scriptures like evangelicals do, that the Old Testament is God's word and they're looking for Messiah. They believe the Old Testament is God's word and they're looking for Messiah. They just believe Jesus wasn't it, they're still looking. He said at that time about 300,000 Orthodox Jews would believe that. They would have a conservative view of the Old Testament, they would observe the Torah, they would look forward to Messiah. Now, I, that was a lot of years ago. I'm guessing maybe 15 years ago. What's interesting about that is today, there are probably about two million out of 15 million Jews that are Orthodox, and it's estimated by 2040 that one in four will be Orthodox. So there's this movement in in Judaism towards a conservative view of their history. Now, interestingly, because of that, this is just an interesting story. Many Jerusalem residents believe not only that the Messiah will return, but that his arrival is imminent, so imminent they've taken legal precautions to ensure they can return to Jerusalem immediately when Messiah comes. In apartment contracts in the city of Jerusalem, there are clauses stipulating what will happen to the apartment if or when the Jewish Messiah comes. Using something called the Messiah Clause, the contracts stipulate that in the event of the coming of the Moshiach, or Jewish Redeemer, the lease may be immediately terminated at the will of the landlord. The landlord wants to be able to terminate the lease so the landlord can go back to the Holy Land if Messiah comes. The owners, generally religious Jews living abroad, are concerned that he will arrive, build a third temple, turn Israel into paradise, and they will be stuck waiting for their apartment tenants' contracts to run out before they can move back. It is prophesied in the Jewish scriptures there will be no more war, murder, theft. The Jerusalem temple will be rebuilt and all the Jews will return to the land of Israel upon his arrival. There's no count how many leases in Jerusalem contain such a clause, but although not standard, the Messiah clause is requested enough that every Jerusalem property manager and real estate lawyer contacted by reporters had heard of it and all except one had dealt with it firsthand. Fact is, the only biblical prophecy and the conjecture of religious leaders upon which to rely for sketches of the next world, the level of zeal surrounding the associated legal and spiritual preparations is astonishing. Perhaps it's all a safety net, just in case the scriptural forecast ends up being correct. But what a statement of faith by these Orthodox Jews that there will be a Messiah, he is coming, and they want to be able to move back to their homeland. See, who Jesus is matters, it's everything. Yet we've got, we've got Christians who believe he's just a man, 
like Marilyn Sewell, we've got atheists who are correcting liberal pastors on it, and we've got Jews who are looking for the next Jesus, and we've got us who believe he's the one, he was the one. There's no future Messiah, it was him. What we believe about Jesus is everything. Fortunately, we have some evidence. So let's read Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. And if you get about three quarters of the way back or so, it begins in the New Testament with page one again. And we're going to be on page 17. So page 17, Matthew chapter 21. I'll give you a second to get there. Again, it's page 17 or Matthew chapter 21. And this is the Palm Sunday passage. It's called the Triumphal Entry. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, I think Bethphage means house of figs, at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now that's actually a quote from Zechariah 9.9. So Matthew is saying Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. And Jesus in doing it is acknowledging he's fulfilling that prophecy. The disciples went and did just as Jesus instructed him and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting. Now this is another quote from Psalm 118. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And that word means Lord save us now. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus said to them, have you, uh, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? He left them, went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Three simple points. The Jesus question first is answered by an undeniable historical reality. Now I'm gonna admit something here, which I don't like to admit because of my emphasis on authorial intent, but this passage doesn't teach what I'm gonna say here at all. You say, well then, why is it in my outline? Because 2,000 years ago, it wasn't necessary to prove that Jesus was a real historical figure. It's implicit in the passage because they're giving narrative history. Anyone who was at that event that day among the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people saw Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody in AD 30 was denying the historical reality. They may not have believed. 
They may not have followed. They may even have pounded the nails in his hands. But they knew he existed. And so as we speak about the identity of Jesus, I want to eliminate the possibility of this sort of myth, legend, story that was very prominent in the last 100, 150 years. Anybody with any amount of scholarship today doesn't believe this anymore. The problem is some of the laziest theologians and philosophers still will spout this in their college philosophy classes that Jesus wasn't really a historic figure. Nobody with any credibility as a historian believes that anymore. So I want to just prove to you simply, let's get it out of the way, that Jesus walked the earth as a man. So here we go. Romano-Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. Some suggest he might have been a little friendly to Christianity. I don't know that he was a Christian. He's a Jewish theologian during the Roman era. He actually references James, the brother of Jesus, in one text. This is late first century in his Testimonium Flavianum. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. In other words, Christianity was born. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him, and the tribe of the Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. This is outside of the scriptures, a Jewish man in the Roman era talking about Jesus. Roman historian and Senator Tacitus. Now, some say Josephus may have become a Christian, was friendly to Christians. Let's just throw in a few of Jesus' enemies who acknowledged his existence. Senator Tacitus in 116 AD, he referred to Christ, his execution by Pontius Pilate, and the existence of Christians in Rome. Marabar Serapion. Uh, Mara, son of Serapion, was a Stoic philosopher from the Roman province of Syria. Sometime in the early centuries, he wrote a letter to his son, also called Serapion, which may contain an early non-Christian reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. The letter refers to the unjust treatment of three wise men. One of them is the murder of Socrates. Second, the burning of Pythagoras. Third, the execution of the wise king of the Jews. The author explains that in all three cases, the wrongdoing resulted in the future punishment of those responsible by God, and that when the wise are oppressed, not only does their wisdom triumph in the end, but God punishes their oppressors. So he's giving examples of unjust executions. He names the king of the Jews. We presume he's talking about Jesus. The Jewish Talmud. Okay, so this is Jewish literature, which is not friendly to Jesus being Messiah. So it's hostile to Jesus. It's in Sanhedrin 43 a. It is taught on the eve of Passover they hung Yeshu and the crier went forth for 40 days before declaring that Yeshu is going to be stoned for practicing witchcraft for enticing and leading Israel astray. Anyone who knows something to clear him should come forth and exonerate him but no one had anything exonerating for him and they hung him referring to the cross on the eve of the Passover. A reference to the crucifixion of Jesus by the opposition research. Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger lived in the first century as a provincial governor of Pontus and Bithynia. He wrote to the emperor Trajan concerning how to deal with Christians who refused to worship the emperor and instead worshipped Christus or Christ. 
And there are more secular sources. These are just the obvious ones. Plus the gospel writers themselves. If you give any credibility to the scriptures as history, which we can say over and over and over, archeology span and history prove the Bible's historians, the Bible's writers were among the most accurate in the history of the planet, not to mention the Holy Spirit of God governed their writings to make sure that they did come out as the word of God. The gospel writers themselves are obvious witnesses to it and they died for it. Plus the enemies of Christianity, the early enemies of Christianity wrote competing gospels like the Gnostic gospels and other things. So if the opposition research is written, it confirms the reality of Jesus in the first place. He walked the earth 2,000 years ago. A man named Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth. Only the laziest of historians and philosophers question it today. If, I, if you Google something right now, please don't, but if you did... <laughs> If you Google something, we don't need everyone turning on their cell phones because those of us over 50 won't know how to turn them on. So you turn on your cell phone, you Google the ossuary of James. You will see a picture. Hit images, you'll see a picture of James, the brother of Jesus, bone box, which we have found, and the inscription is James, the brother of Jesus. It exists overseas, I believe, around the Middle East. The Jesus question is answered by an undeniable historical reality. Jesus walked the earth, and so the question remains, he was not a myth or a legend. What do we do with Jesus? Who was he? His existence is undeniable. Second point, and this is in the text, the Jesus question answered by a clear messianic royal claim. When dealing with the identity of Jesus, it also matters what Jesus said about himself what Jesus claimed about himself. C.S. Lewis wrote this in his book, Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And I love that because think about it. If Jesus claims to be God, if people want to view him as a great teacher and yet he kind of himself thinks he's God, I'm not sure that's the kind of person I want to follow or I want my kids to follow, you know? Somebody who's deluded, who really needs to be kind of like possibly put in a padded cell. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg. Never met a guy who says that, but it's interesting or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. I love that. Jesus did not want you to conclude about himself, nice guy, good teacher, ethical leader. It wasn't one of the options. It wasn't an option he left open to you. Jesus claims, don't leave us 
the good guy option. They were never intended to. Our title for Jesus as followers of Christ is typically this, when you kind of have the full uh, sort of inscription, it's typically Jesus Christ our Lord, all right? Now, what does that mean? Jesus is actually his name, it means savior. There are other people named Jesus. You know, Joshua is an Old Testament form, sort of a Hebrew form of the word Jesus. So there are other people who are named savior as well. You know, Jesus, you know, that name's still out there today. You turn on Major League Baseball today, you'll see plenty of guys named Jesus, all right? So Jesus is just a name. But it did mean savior, and when Mary was told by the angel to give him the name Jesus, the, the angel said, because he will save his people from their sins. So it's an intended name to indicate his purpose. Jesus, just a name, means savior. Christ is not just a name. It's not a name at all. Christ is a title. It's an official title. It means Messiah, which means king. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're acknowledging sort of the Jewish claim that he is king and Messiah. That's what Christ means. They didn't, you know, see Jesus in the manger. Mary didn't say, Jesus Christ, like it's a middle name. She didn't. She called him Jesus. I don't know if he had a middle name, but his name was Jesus. Christ is the title given to him because of this claim he makes on Palm Sunday. Lord. It's either a title for God because it exists in the scriptures as a name for God all of the time, or it also could be a title for a person who has preeminence, to whom obedience is due. So people might call somebody Lord or Master. So we're not sure always what that means when his disciples say to him, Lord, Lord. You know, it could mean God, or it could mean like great rabbi, either one. Palm Sunday is largely viewed as Jesus' claim to be Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ, our Lord, that he's Israel's Messiah. This was a well-documented prophetic expectation from the Old Testament. Most of the books in the Old Testament that are called the prophets, the major prophets or the minor prophets, they reference this figure who will come in the future. The prophets typically do multiple things. Now we think of prophets as always talking to us about the future. Most of what the prophets did is actually call people back to obedience to the law. So the the greatest body of literature that the prophets write is calling people to obedience to what they have in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Israel's law. So they call people to obedience and then they also make future predictions about the restoration of Israel. When you get to the prophets after Israel's been taken captive, a lot of it's about someday God's gonna rescue us and then they'll connect this historic figure, this future figure to that restoration. We know that figure is Jesus. They're looking for a Messiah. So they call people to obedience, they predict a future restoration, and they connect Messiah to that restoration. Some of the historical uh, predictions we see in, in Genesis that uh, this, this Messiah will be through the seed of Abraham. As God says to Abraham, all families on earth will be blessed through you. So basically what that means is Messiah is gonna be Jewish. It's gonna be through the line of Abraham. Later on in the book of Genesis, through the line of Judah, it's going to be of the 12 tribes, it's going to be of the line of Judah. So he's narrowing it down again. In 2 Samuel, when uh, King David impressed God a whole lot, God said to him, my reward to you is the Messiah is going to be through your line. Your line will sit on Israel's throne forever. So we know that it's narrowed down. Jesus being born in Bethlehem is part of Jesus being born through the Davidic line because that's where David and his father were from. Isaiah full of references to the future. 
and this person who would come as Messiah indicates that that Messiah will be preceded by another prophetic figure that we know to be John the Baptist. Also in Isaiah, that's where you see a really firm statement about the virgin birth, which looks all the way back to Genesis 3, that it will be the seed of a woman, the virgin birth. It's where we get the Mary and Joseph stories. Some say there are over 400, 456 to be exact, I believe by John Ankerberg's count, 456 prophecies about Jesus, many of them already fulfilled. One of them was Zechariah 9.9. It's what Matthew references. Messiah will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. When Jesus did that, that morning on Palm Sunday, it was a statement by Jesus. He's no longer worried about, at this point in his ministry, stirring up Jewish nationalism, which was always his concern. If you want to start performing miracles, if you walk on water, if you're healing people in front of crowds of 10,000, and you're doing it for an oppressed people, those people are naturally thinking, whoa, we could use this dude on the battlefield, right? That's the way they looked at him. Miracle worker, let's get our freedom back from Rome. But on Palm Sunday, Jesus said, it doesn't matter what they want to make of me. I'm acknowledging I am the Messiah. He's not worried about Jewish nationalism anymore. And on that Sunday 2,000 years ago, he made this historic claim that he is Christ, King. The roads to Jerusalem were full. The common modern movies about this just can't do it justice because they couldn't have hired enough actors. Up to two and a half million people would be in the area around Jerusalem at Passover. I think I mentioned this last week. There was a Roman census of all the lambs that were slain for Passover. There was 250,000 lambs slain a little bit after this happened in history. Passover was typically eaten by at least 10 Jewish people at one time. And so that means 10 times 250,000, 2.5 million people in and around Jerusalem at that era in history during Passover. This was a big deal. Jesus is coming in the early week of Passover. The miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, remember when Lazarus is entombed and Jesus is you know, with his disciples a ways away and takes him three or four days to get there. In fact, he hears Lazarus is sick and he says, oh, we're just gonna wait a little bit. Looked incredibly insensitive. We're gonna wait a little bit. In other words, we're gonna let him die because I got something bigger in store. So he waits till Lazarus dies, shows up at his tomb, he's been dead for four days, raises him from the dead. That happened like right in this vicinity, right around Bethany. And it happened three months before. So you got two and a half million people coming to Jerusalem, they're all pilgrims. This is where the Lazarus miracle had taken place. After that miracle, the, Rome, or the Jewish leaders wanted him dead, and so Jesus had to go into hiding a little bit to the east, but the word is spreading, you know, is Jesus gonna come to Passover? And then he gets there, and people have been picking up his trail around Jerusalem, which we talked about last week, you know, where he healed the blind man. So people are like, they're like getting out of their hotel rooms early in the morning, they're waiting for Jesus to hit the streets, and they're gonna be in this long procession towards the city. It was like a stadium event, you know, like the Stanley Cup finals where you've got the 25 or 35,000 people inside and tens of thousands out in the streets with big screens. It was like that. People were packed everywhere as Jesus is making his way out into the street in Bethany that morning. Tells his disciples, I want you to get a colt. It's never been ridden before. And when somebody asks you why you're taking this colt, because it's going to look like a theft, 
Tell them the Lord needs them and they'll let you have them. By riding on that colt, everyone would have recognized his claim to be fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. As he gets on this colt and he starts heading towards Jerusalem, psalms that spoke of Messiah and salvation from the Messiah, like Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It means, Lord, save us now, Hosanna. Those are being chanted. Palm fronds are laid on the road. Cloaks are laid on the road. His enemies hear the messianic chants and they complain about him because they know this is being claimed. He defended them and he defended the praise of others and he claimed to be Messiah and he had checked all the boxes from birth. And he made the claim that day. But for those of us who are Christians, we know he needed to be the Messiah, but that's not as, much, uh, as of much theological significance to us because what really matters to us is the, the Son of God part, the Lord part. So the third part of the question, the Jesus question, is answered by a claim of deity. Now, this is not quite as obvious in the text. It's clear he's saying I'm the Messiah, but it is nonetheless present. Now, just to give you a little Jewish perspective, um, rabbis in Jesus' day did not necessarily expect, in fact, I would say they did not expect, period, that the Messiah would be God. They did not. Most of the Old Testament prophecies don't go that far. And the ones that we look back on now and say they do go that far, they're a little ambiguous to Old Testament Jews. So the rabbis of Jesus' day thought Messiah would be a man sent to rescue Israel, blessed by God. God's hand would be on him. He'd be used by God, but he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be the son of God. People weren't expecting that. But we know the theology of who Jesus was went beyond Messiah. Nobody expected the level of miracles. I mean, you don't see in the Old Testament the level of miracles Jesus produced, predicted at this level. One cluster of miracles in a short period of time. Remember when he, he calmed the waves and winds, he he cast out demons, he healed the girl, the woman who had a sickness, and he raised somebody from the dead all like in about a 24-hour period. And the reactions to that from his own disciples, who is this that even the winds and waves obey him when he calmed the seas? When he's casting out demons, the demons recognized him and said, Jesus, don't torture us before the time. And they called him Jesus, son of the most high God. They knew. So there's these miracles that indicate his deity. And elsewhere, Jesus has used both parables and fairly direct language to make the claim, I am God's son, I am God. But I want to say, on Palm Sunday, he also insinuated it in many ways. When Jesus instructs the disciples to get the colt that nobody has ever ridden, it's an unbroken colt. To me, that's a statement to some degree of his power over nature. Because I'm not sure unbroken colts are really rid, you know, willing to be ridden like that. Now, I'm not a donkey expert. I've been called a donkey a few times, but I'm not a donkey expert. But my guess is they're not easy to ride. In fact, I've got a little experience with things that aren't easy to ride. I had a friend who owned a little farm. He had some kids out there. and a little farm. We used to hunt together a little bit. And they had a horse. And one time I went out to his farm. And we brought our dog, Lucifer. And they put me on the horse, and mom had not tied the saddle to the horse very tightly at all. 
And I'm kind of a big guy, capable of dislodging a saddle that's not tight to a horse. And so this horse's name was Dudley. I like to refer to him as Deadly Dudley. And I got up on Deadly Dudley, and Lucifer evidently didn't like horses. Lucifer also had a name Samson. I ceased using that early on in his life and just referred to him as Lucifer. Lucifer began to bark at Dudley. Dudley began to run. Remember, the saddle is not tight to the horse. When a saddle is not tight to the horse and somebody my size gets on it, gravity works. And so I began to start going down the side of the horse. And what do you do when you're on a horse and you're trying to stand? What do you hold on to? The horn. Well, that doesn't matter. That's just sliding down with the saddle. And then you're maybe trying to grab some of the, you know, the hair that's on its neck. I am headed to a bad place. And this farm, it had buildings on it in the past that didn't exist anymore. So there's concrete platforms everywhere with no structure on them anywhere. There hasn't been rain in a while. I am flying around the yard on deadly dudley. Lucifer's barking. And finally, I had to make an executive decision. Do I want to live? because I'm headed under Dudley, and Dudley was right-sized for me. He was a massive horse, and I was about ready to get hooves that big, you know, hitting me in the head as Dudley was running. So I dove off of Dudley. Dudley hit my head, my shoulder, and maybe a few other things, and I have no memory of the event after that. No. Anyway, I don't think that a colt that's never been broken can be controlled unless God miraculously does it. So I do view that as Jesus sort of taking power over nature. And then he also says to them, tell them the Lord needs them. Which I would say, well is that Lord like God or is that Lord like master? I'm not sure, but it does get clearer. His claims get clearer. When he cleansed the temple, which I'm not talking about at all today because I preached on that in our church series. When he cleansed the temple, and then in Matthew he just shortens that, makes it a verse. When he cleansed the temple, he called it what? My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And I believe he's embodying that quote as though I am God and this is my house. He performed miracles in the temple and when confronted by the religious leaders, this is the clearest statement of his acceptance and statement of divinity or deity. He said, do you hear what these children are saying? I believe this quote is from the Psalms. And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? In other words, these children are praising God and he applied it to himself. The strongest statement in that day that he was saying to the crowd, yeah, I'm Messiah, but I'm more. I'm God and I'm receiving praise. Just five days from that moment, he would be fulfilling his divine mission as God. Messiah would be crucified. That has little theological significance for us. A king dies. More importantly, the God side of this, the deity side, the sinless son of God would be crucified. That has major theological significance. Every one of us has a sin problem. Every one of us. We do the wrong thing. We've been doing it since the church nursery. And on the third page of the Bible, God promised a solution. He said, there will be a time where the seed of the woman, 
this woman who was deceived in creation when Adam and Eve sinned, says the seed of the woman will one day crush the influence, the realm, the domain of sin and Satan. And now history has come to its close. Jesus is the answer to that prophecy. As son of God, he was sinless. Therefore, he could be a sacrifice for all of humanity. I can't die for humanity because I'm a sinner. You can't die for humanity because you're a sinner. You deserve death spiritually and physically because of your own sins, theologically. A perfect atonement is necessary. Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. His death, the death of the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, was the payment for the sins of humanity, for your sins, for my sins. And as he hung on the cross on Friday, that became very clear. From noon until three, darkness a darkness which was talked about by Roman historians up into the third century, trying to figure out what kind of eclipse happened in AD 30 when Jesus hung on the cross. Because from noon until three it was pitch black. That is an international sign of judgment in every religion. As God judged the person of Jesus for my sins. Jesus felt the separation as he hung on the cross and he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he recognized for the first time in the Trinity, the Father had abandoned the Son in that moment as he hung there bearing the weight of our sin. And at the end, right before he died, he said, it is finished. And it wasn't a wimpy Jesus hanging on the cross saying, it's over. It's the word to die which in the Greek perfect tense means it's a victory chant. It's what Roman soldiers would cry out when they came back from victory among parades. He hung on the cross and as he died, he didn't say, it's over. He said, it is finished. I've done it. Sin is paid for. You now can come to me for forgiveness and atonement. How have you answered the Jesus question? Good man, good teacher, that's not what he was trying to say about himself. Ethical leader, ethical leader who's so misguided he thinks he's God, it's not an ethical leader. Jesus Christ, the Lord, it's the only right answer. To be a Christian, that's what we have to believe. We have to trust him. We have to believe that Jesus is the son of God. Can't be a Christian without that one. Gotta check that box. Jesus is the son of God. That what Jesus did on the cross paid the penalty for our sins. We trust in that, that Jesus is our savior. Son of God, savior. We trust in that. We choose to say, I believe Jesus, that I need you as an atonement for my sins before a holy father. And Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're committing to following him. We're saying because you are the son of God, because you died for me, I need your atonement. I'm committing my life to follow you as a part of receiving your gift of forgiveness and salvation. If you've never made a commitment like that in your life today, I would encourage you to do that. Just to, in your heart of hearts, reach out in faith 
and say the simple words in your heart that help us to cross that bridge into being a child of God, into demonstrating faith in who Jesus is. I'm just gonna read this out loud, and if it's your desire to acknowledge who Jesus is for the first time in your life, I would encourage you to just pray this silently as I pray it aloud. Dear Jesus, I need a savior, and you are my only hope. I believe you are the son of God. I trust in your sacrifice on the cross to pay for my sins, and I accept you as Lord of my life. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. God, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for how clear Jesus made it long ago. And I pray that you would help each one of us and billions of other people everywhere around the world to see the truth and reality of who Jesus is. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.